God that's more just, a God that's more righteous. Uh, if there's a God that is uh, more just, if there's a God that's more merciful, um, if there is another God out there that are and is those things, then uh, we're here for no reason. We've gathered in vain. The songs we sing mean nothing. The scripture that we're about to read is meaningless. It's folk- folklore and fairy tale. Um, but, but I believe in a greater hope tonight. I believe that we've gathered here for a particular reason. To learn about the one true, holy, righteous, good, faithful, gracious, merciful God. The one God who sits on the right, just throne. The one God that will come back and redeem his church. I believe tonight that we've gathered not for folklore or fairy tale, but the truth. Amen. And so tonight, friends, we will not settle for anything less but the real, true, right gospel. And I just want to welcome every single one of you here to this. If tonight's your first time here, thank you for coming to Matthias. It's amazing to have you here. And you need to know one thing about us right right off the get-go is that we are seeking the wholehearted truth from the Scripture through the Word of God. And so we will not settle for anything less than that. So are you guys ready to go tonight? Awesome. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. If we can get a little bit more lights on the crowd, that would be phenomenal so they can actually see their Bible. That would be helpful this evening. Thank you so much. Um, Now, uh, how many of you guys watch watch The Office? Any of us fans here? Okay, yeah, a few of you guys. It's a brilliant show. Um, And and oftentimes with uh, with TV shows, you don't want to come in to like season seven and all of a sudden just start watching it, right? Like how many of you guys were simply obsessed with Lost? Okay, just admit your obsession, right? They're the folks that need counseling, right? But, uh, but th- these shows, you don't like, ju- especially like a show like Lost, you don't jump into season whatever, 10, and, and just like catch up, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. And so I know that every time we gather, there's a little bit of catch up that needs to happen uh, with Daniel so that we're all on the same page. Are we, are we good? Are we savvy? Can I do a little bit of reconnaissance with you? Now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he's one of the main characters that we've been studying. But on the flip side of Nebuchadnezzar is this man named Daniel. Daniel has three friends. Uh, they were part of 50 to 75 Jews that were exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar desires to brainwash them, incorporate them in a Babylonian subculture that they may essentially become Babylonians. Now, the long and the short of it over the last couple of weeks has been Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And Daniel and his three friends have been trained for three years in Babylonian culture. And so um, a part of Babylonian culture is the study of sorcery, magic, and omens. And so Nebuchadnezzar brings together all of his wise men after he has this dream. And he's like, all right, boys, not only do I want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream, but I want you to tell me the exact dream. I want you to tell me what it is before I give you what the dream is. And, And obviously they respond like, hey, this is impossible. No man can do this. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, then you will all die, which is, seems somewhat unfair, right? But that's the punishment. Everyone dies. But before they start the sleigh fest, he goes to Daniel with his chief executioner. And Daniel with the chief executioner there in the room says, you know what? Uh, there's no need to kill anyone. Put me in front of the king and I'll interpret the dream and tell the king what the dream is. Pretty gutsy, okay? And so last week we saw that Daniel stands in the king's court with Nebuchadnezzar, and he not only interprets his dream for him, but he tells him exactly what the dream was. And it it looks something like this. Put up my statue here. Um, It looks something like that, for those of you that were here last week. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's dream was really peculiar because it it listed out all of these empires that were to come 
after the Babylonian Empire. I mentioned to you last week that Nebuchadnezzar represented this head of gold, which meshed well with Babylonian culture because they were all about gold. And then these subsequent empires that were to come. So Daniel, in a stunning piece of prophecy, tells Nebuchadnezzar all of these things that would happen hundreds of years before they actually happened. Unbelievable. Now, where we left off last week is Daniel says, this interpretation is sure. And we kind of left it on a cliffhanger. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't responded. We hadn't seen what happened after. We just know that Daniel gave the interpretation. Now, before we dive in, I need to give you some context of the emotions of the moment. When I was a sophomore in high school, one day I was feeling the back of my neck. And odd, maybe. Um, but I, I was feeling the back of my neck, and I felt this lump on the, back of, on the back of your neck here. And apparently you have some, I don't know this, but apparently you have some lymph nodes back here. And I was feeling the back of my neck, and for whatever reason, at that particular uh, moment in time, my mind instantly went from feeling the lump in the back of my note to, in the back of my neck to I had cancer and I was going to die. I mean, I mean, literally, I convinced myself in about three seconds worth of time, I just like kept feeling this thing. I'm like, like this is over. I've never felt this lump before. This must be lymphoma. I, this is horrible, right? And so what I did was I didn't tell anyone. I was scared to hear other people's opinions. I was especially scared to go to the doctor. So I didn't tell anyone. So literally for a week, I became the biggest hypochondriac there ever lived. I mean, I'm literally touching my, there, there were probably bruises on the back of my neck from the amount of time I was like, is it still there? Is it still there, right? And so finally, after sleepless nights and thinking that I was just days away from passing away, I went into my mom and I was like, hey mom, I just want to let you know I have cancer and I will be dying soon. And she's like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? No, mom, I, look, here, here's the deal. Mom, it's okay. I'm going to be all right. Like, I believe in Jesus, and so my eternity's secure. I have a lump on the back of my neck that is definitely cancer, and so we just need to go to the doctor and confirm. My mom was like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? You know, let's, let's just go to the doctor first, right? And so after all of this angst, I mean, I was, have you, like, just tension, right? Just so hyper-fearful. The doctor, like, starts feeling the back of my neck, and, and he's like, you play sports, right? And I'm like, yeah, yes, I do, sir. He's like, you have a strained muscle in the back of your neck, and um, your neck's swollen. And, and seriously, I had, I had convinced myself that I was going to die. Like, in that moment, I can remember giving the doctor, and he was a local physician, so I knew him, this, this biggest hug. I was like, so I'm not going to die. No, you're not. So you, you, like, in fact, it's probably not going to hurt for another, like, okay. And me and the doctor just had this moment. Unbelievable, right? You go from tension and angst and distress to relief. That moment when you've been worried about something and all of a sudden your fears go away, have you ever been there before? I want you, listen, to understand Nebuchadnezzar's emotions right now, we need to get that moment. Because he had this dream and he was extremely fearful. He was, he was fearful that the dream would say that he, was, that he and his kingdom was over. And so all that he hears, and we'll see that here in a second, is that he's the head of gold. That's what Nebuchadnezzar hears. Excuse me, say that again? I'm the head of gold? Yes, you are. He doesn't even, and we'll see this here in a second, ask any questions about the fact that part of the prophecy is that the Medo-Persian Empire is going to take over. He doesn't ask any questions about that. The only thing he's concerned with is the fact that in this interpretation, that it says he's the head of gold. And so imagine this moment of tension, to relief. And now we get the picture of Nebuchadnezzar's emotions a wee bit, shall we? Daniel chapter 2, verse 46. When you're there, say, I'm there. Wonderful job. 
you're, you're learning well. I love it. Verse 46, Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. Um, every time I hear the word homage, I think of Braveheart, right? That's this, this kind of this weird word that means respect. And in this case, the Aramaic, the, the Aramaic word is sagid. And he guesses at what sagid is? It's worship. Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face before this Jewish exile and worships. Now, this intrigued me, and so I did some research. 36 times in the scriptures, uh, someone or somebody, a people group, fall on their face in respect, prayer, or worship 36 times. Uh, we have some big-name characters that do that. Moses and Aaron, David, uh, Ruth does that, the Israelites. Um, but never, never a pagan king. And so here in this moment, you see a pagan king who worships pagan gods literally fall on his face in worship. Unbelievable. There's some things in you that are beginning to be like, okay, so, like this is crazy. We're witnessing here this king who worships all of these gods. We're worshiping, we're witnessing him beginning to like, his heart's beginning to get softened towards God. We'll hold that thought just a little bit. As I kept studying this, people falling on their face. What I realized was, and I looked through all the scripture, is that it happens in two different times. Two different times when people have this overwhelming sense of either need or the power of God. If you look through the scriptures that every time that someone falls on their face in respect, prayer, or worship, it's when either they recognize their deep rooted need or they get overwhelmed with the power of God. No different than Jesus. One time the scripture says Jesus falls on his face. Matthew 20, chapter 26, it says this. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Those of you that know the story, you know that this is in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is wrestling with the cross. And this is this moment of angst and the scripture says and alludes to the fact that he's sweating blood. In Jesus' overwhelming sense of need, he falls on his face pleading with God, his Father, if there's any other way. But what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. So, Nebuchadnezzar, pagan God, pagan land, and Jesus both fall on their face in respect and awe of a great God. This is the only thing that the two have in common, right? Like, as we keep journeying through this, right, there are, this is the only moment where we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar and Jesus having something in common when they're both on their face before a great God. What I've realized is this, is that we're not on our face enough. You're like, Mark, that's strange. That's charismatic to fall on your face and worship the problem is, um, many of you guys know my grandpa's story. My grandpa was a stud, stallion, huge guy in my life. One of my favorite moments with my grandfather was when I walked in his room and I caught him on his knees praying alongside his bed. And I would kind of like peek in the door. Uh, I can remember being 14, 15, peeking in the door and seeing my grandfather uh, kneeling against the bed praying. Sometimes he knew I was there, other times he didn't. 
uh, a few weeks later after one of those times of catching him, I remember being in my grandparents' uh, bedroom. And I walked in and next to my, grand, uh, my grandpa's bed, and some of you guys have heard me talk about this, there were literal grooves out of the carpet where his knees hit when he prayed. Um, I, I fear that we're not overwhelmed enough with need and the power of God that it just causes in us this overwhelming reaction just to fall on our face in respect, prayer, and worship. It's so difficult because I never want to stage that. I never want to be like, all right, church, and now we fall on our face. Now we get on our face in worship. But, but if it's so prevalent in the scriptures, if even Jesus in the garden is on his face and hear a pagan king on his face in prayer, then when was the last time that you just overwhelmingly saw your need or the power of God and it caused you to get weak knees and you just had to fall to your face? It might reveal that we're not being overwhelmed enough with God. And so here, a pagan king. But he doesn't just fall prostrate before Daniel. He also does this. And he commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And you guys remember Spencer's Gifts? It was kind of that shop when you were a Christian kid that, like, you dared your Christian friends to go into in the mall, right? So it was kind of, it was a naughty shop, you know? And it was kind of one of those shops, like, if your parents ever caught you with a Spencer's gift bag, like, it was just, it was just bad news, right? But I remember one time walking in Spencer's gifts to my demise, and um, you kids don't know about Spencer's, good thing. Do they still have Spencer's? Okay, they do. You know about it. But anyway, I, th I thought that incense was something that Spencer's, like, made. Because you, you walk in there, and, like, the whole thing just smells like one big incense pot. You know, and I, I never even, and I don't say pot there, you know, that's completely disconnected, but I, I, I didn't know what incense was. And so I just, I, I walked in the store, and literally this whole, it's like a fog in the room of this incense. And so when I started studying incense in this context, I was like, okay, the, apparently, like, incense is, like, goes back. Like, there's some cultural understanding here. Interestingly enough... Incense was one of the most used ways of worship. In fact, one day out of every year, the Babylonians put on the altar of Bel, which is another name for Marduk or Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, they would put tens and tens and tens of pounds of incense on the altar and burn it. So, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face, pays homage to Daniel, and then what does he do? He offers up something that is offered up to the same god that he puts all of this incense on an altar too. Unbelievable. So again, in this moment in your heart, you're like, this is conversion. Like Nebuchadnezzar is coming to God. And we are witnessing here one of the most hardcore transformations. Just, just hold that thought one second. Verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So especially now you're like, Nebuchadnezzar is, something's happening in him that is just completely changing him. Listen, the problem with taking scripture out of its context and proper understanding is that you could come to that conclusion right here. You, if you were just, just studying this verse with no understanding of the rest of Daniel, we could be like, Nebuchadnezzar is coming to God. This is awesome. Let's celebrate. In a few verses, he builds a big golden statue, come back next week, and tells everyone to worship it, okay? So we'll study. He's clearly not being converted here, but what is happening? Have you ever stood on top of a mountain before with some skis? Come on now, right? 
You turn around, the little powdery stuff is like lightly glazing your face. And you look down at the ski town. Any of you in that moment ever just, just been in awe of creation? You've been like, this is, un there has to be something else. Okay, I know my wife wouldn't like that story, but she'll like this one. Have you ever been on a beach, right? You've, you've been on a beach at night, right, in the breeze. You can smell the salt water, right? And the breeze is coming off and just all the stars. Have you ever been in one of those moments and you've just been like, God isn't, like, there has to be something more. Have you ever been in a tree stand, um, Taylors? Um, I, I never will be in a tree stand, but for those of you that have, have you ever been in a tree stand getting ready to kill animals, right? <laughs> Thinking to yourself, there must be something more. Look, no matter what it is, they say that every soldier becomes a praying soldier. Prayer and awe does not imply conversion. You can stand on the top of a mountain and gaze out and be awed with beauty. You can sit on the beach and be awed with beauty. You can sit in the wherever it is and have this moment at the power of God, which is ever-present and all around us, and be awed by it. But it does not imply conversion. Nebuchadnezzar has a moment here where he awes at the power of God, but it's not conversion. He sits back and, and he's like, no one else could do this, but, but Daniel... Daniel had this moment where all of a sudden this dream, something is happening here. And so he has this moment in self-consumed arrogance where he's able to get past all of the rest of the dream, think that he's the head of gold, and just get to this place where he's like, oh, your God, your God is so unbelievable, your God is great. And so that's what he does. But he doesn't end there. He makes several other statements. He says, your God is the God of uh, gods. Your, your Lord is the Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. Again, some could say, well, well, hold on, Mark. He makes statements like he's the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Something is happening here. No, no, no. There's two terms that we need to talk about. Polytheistic and monotheistic. Now, to be monotheistic means you believe in what? Anyone? One God. Nebuchadnezzar is clearly not a monotheist, okay? He is a polytheistic thinker. He has multiple gods, gods for everything. I've already told you about Babylonian culture, though it was overarched by Marduk or Marduk or Bel. There are all kinds of gods, gods for everything. And so in this moment, for him to make a statement, the God of gods or the Lord of kings, it's just adding another god into his, into his scheme of gods. Are you with me? He's just like, of course. Like, I can worship one more. It, it, it doesn't matter. Like, we'll just, we'll throw another one in the pot of gods here. It's all good. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar has no idea who he's worshiping. He has no idea. He has no personal relationship with those that he's worshiping. And so just to add another god in the mix of it all is not a big deal and ultimately does not matter to Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't know who he's worshiping. I just, I just want to pause for a moment and say this. We find ourselves connecting so much, I believe, with Nebuchadnezzar in this story throughout the whole book of Daniel. Do you know who it is that you're worshiping? You see, listen, it's one thing to say all this God stuff and to read scriptures from Psalm 77 and 73 and get consumed with there is only one God. We can say all of that. But do you know who it is that you're worshiping? Is it clear to you? Is his character being revealed in more and more ways? If not, you're just like a polytheistic thinker. You're just a guy who has a whole bunch of gods, and it just so happens 
that tonight you decide to sing some songs, lessen yourself for a few momentary glimpses, though tomorrow you'll worship yourself again, making you a God just like the God that you sing about. It's polytheistic thought. A monotheist, which Daniel clearly is, God is God, I worship no one else, he sits on the throne, he alone is good, he alone is faithful, and so I sit and wait on him. So, picture this. King of the modern world lays his face at the foot of Daniel, a 20 or 21 year old, and then starts to make some statements about his God, and then it just gets better. Look at this in verse 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. This is crazy. Do, do you guys understand what just happened? Put up my map here. Put up my map here, right? I didn't make this on my own. Sorry about the black and white. Work with it, okay? This is the Babylonian empire at this, at this moment in time. He has just made Daniel one of the most powerful men in the entire known world who just a few years ago was in exile. He was in exile. In fact, Ariarch last week we saw calls him in exile. He had a death sentence on his head. Listen, I love this teaching because it's so beautiful to see God's sovereignty. Daniel could have never planned this. Let's just be honest. All right, here's the deal. I'm going to get kidnapped. Uh, this will work out well. Then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over, tell the king I'm not eating his food. He'll like me for that. Uh, then I'll somehow come out of this great on the other side of the training. In fact, I'll be head of my class, the scripture alludes to. Uh, then what's going to happen is the king's going to have this dream. I'm going to make him have a dream somehow. That'll be sweet. Then somehow I'll give myself supernatural powers to interpret the dream. And then guess what? Through it all, I'll be prefect. Like, I'll be the head of this whole province. He will give me... Only God's sovereignty could be so creative. Do you guys understand the power of God here? This could not be done by man. It needs to be our story. I could not be done by man. My story could not have happened by my power and my creative mind. Only God. And it's that focus and that story piece that ultimately gives God a tremendous amount of glory while diminishing ourselves. This is God's strategy, God's plan, and God takes this Jewish exile, and pretty soon he becomes one of the most powerful men in the modern world. Unbelievable. He makes him chief prefect over all of the wise men of Babylon. And verse 49, where we'll spend most of our time tonight, Daniel made a request of the king. So he, he goes from uh, death sentence, exile, and now guess what? He's, he's, now he's making requests, right? Like he's just calling out to the king. Like something has happened here where now this 20-year-old, 21-year-old, and the king just have, Daniel's just making requests. And here's what he says. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as three friends over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So these three friends who he had gone back to and prayed with and pleaded for God's mercy to give him the interpretation of the dream. In this moment, he remembers his friends. Guys, listen, listen. If you're just reading the scripture, you completely miss this. This is one of the most beautiful pieces of these entire four verses, and here's why. At the moment, 
when he could have said, forget all of you. Like, he has just gained so much power. These three Jewish friends, he could never even see again. He's gained so much power and strength, and the king is looking to him now for direction, and the king is giving him ownership. This is a moment where he could be like, forget those guys. Those guys are peons. Like, th these guys have nothing to do with me anymore. But no. In this moment, he's still remembering these three friends who he just a few days earlier was on his knees pleading in his house for God's mercy. He remembers them. I, I keep sharing that often throughout this book we're going to see pieces of Daniel's character that will be encouraging to you, and this is another one. Daniel's wor uh, world seems to be very slow. It's like even in our culture, which is very, 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 very fast-paced, a culture in general always has been moving quickly. But it seems like Daniel isn't phased by it. It seems like, listen, it seems like Daniel's world moves to a different pace. It seems that somehow Daniel has found a way to, to signify and bring great significance to every moment that he that he interacts with, that he has. It's as if Daniel, in all these moments, these sovereign ordained moments in his life, he experiences them. He's like there for them. He understands them. In this moment, this would have been the one moment where he could have taken all of these relationships for granted. I don't care anymore. I've made a name for myself. The king of the modern world is looking to me and saying, you now have power. Forget these guys. But in this moment, the thing that he could have taken for granted the most, he ultimately brings along with him and remembers his friends. Um, I was watching a, a show the other night. I won't say the name of the show because it's the best show on television, House. Um, anyway, I was watching it, and... Um, Long and the short of it is, this man is dying, and imagine that in his house. And uh, this man's dying, and he's uh, reflecting this whole time on his on his relationship with his daughter that he that he didn't know after she was six. So he had this relationship with his daughter, and he left the family. And so this whole conversation is between house and him, and, and right before he dies, he calls his daughter, not not knowing, you know, what she's going to answer, how this conversation is going to go. And in that moment, as my laptop's sitting on my lap and I'm watching House, you just have this, like, natural inclination to just, to just go hug your kids, right? So I, I literally, like, I, I just I closed the laptop, and Avery was already in bed, and I just, I just mosey up there, and just to get a glimpse of her, and just to see her, and for a few minutes, remember the fact that I'm blessed to have a daughter that I'm in relationship with. For the, listen, for the last two or three weeks, I've been wrestling with one question predominantly. And the question is this. Is it possible to live life where you take nothing for granted? Is that even possible? Is it possible to get in a rhythm where the world slows down and literally in every moment of your life, you understand its significance. 
when you're having conversations with people. Like earlier, I was talking with my good friend Jeff, who's a pastor here, and we're sitting there talking, and I'm thinking about, I have a phenomenal friend in Jeff. He's such a great pastor. God called him here to minister, and every word that we share here is beautiful. Why does it take a movie or a show or a song to bring us to this point where we don't take anything for granted anymore, and that just lasts for a few minutes? You know what I'm talking about. What song is it for you? What movie is it for you? What show has it been? All these moments where all of a sudden our emotions get heightened, and for a few short minutes, we remember the important things. Is it possible to live life in such a rhythm where nothing gets taken for granted? Think about your day-to-day. Right? You got into your car, some of you. I have a car. Like, I actually drive. I know many people make fun of my man van. It, it works, right? I drive. I have money enough to stop and get a Diet Coke at Quick Trip. I have relationships enough to text people and to talk with people all throughout the day. I have a Bible that is at my access where I can read. I have a church that I get to gather with. I have people that I can look in the eye and challenge and encourage. I have people that will call me and hold me accountable. I have a wife and a family that is so beautiful and I love. Is it possible? Every conversation, everything that we're doing, that we understand its significance. I believe one of the greatest pieces of Daniel's character is he takes nothing for granted. He understands in the slow pace of his world, which is ultimately God's, that everything matters. And so it causes him to make these decisions under God's sovereign rule that seem to go against completely our our sinful nature. He says, no, I'll stand up against you even though I'm 16, 17, 18. I'll do that. I'll do that right now. And you know what? I'll interpret all these things. His world slows and he takes nothing for granted. What today have you taken for granted? Who? What relationships? What people you've just gotten used to. You haven't communicated the significance of that relationship to them in a long, long time. You're waiting on some movie or song to finally escalate it again. What have you taken for granted? The things God's given us, the possessions that he's awarded us and graced us somehow by his means and grace and mercy. What for you are you taking for granted? And it better not be this. Look at this. This whole scripture ends with this. But Daniel remained. What does your scripture say at the end of verse 49? Daniel remained where? Come on, in the what? In the king's court. Death sentence, Jewish exile, in the king's court. Could there be any bigger transformation? Peon, no matter, no significance, and all of a sudden, you find yourself in the king's court. My friends, this is the gospel. I pray that tonight, that none of the things that you're taking for granted, of all the things that you think through, I pray that one of them is not the gospel. That somehow, God takes these people that have a death sentence on them because of their sin, And then through the blood of Jesus can place them in the court of the one king that even Nebuchadnezzar says, you're the Lord of kings. Why do we take the gospel for granted? Why do we take all these precious things that God has given us for granted? Why can't we just stop in this fast-paced world and for a few moments in time say, God, thank you for my wife. I pray that I can love her better. God, thank you for my kids. I may may die at any point and not have them and hold them again. 
How do we ever get to that point where we live like that consistently? I think it only happens through true understanding of the gospel. Now, when I was um, a teenager and a youth pastor, I was very, uh, I got bothered by the emotional movement. Anyone else when you're back in, and what I mean by that is, I would like come to these points where like people would be standing up here at this point and they would give kind of a, a come to Jesus talk and then the band would come up and you know they play this great thing and then even as a communicator then I'd be like no I know there's still more out there come on up you know and I see that hand kind of thing and for those of you that, that didn't grow up around that this, this doesn't make sense but it's, it was like committing to Christ based upon emotion based upon awe. Like, let's create a service, an opportunity, where people awe what's happening, and then they have this half-hearted emotional experience. So I ran from that. I ran from it. I, I didn't want anything to do with it. And so in doing so, I uh, went too far, overcompensated, and, uh, and got on the other end. Like, Almost, I'm never going to give people an opportunity to just to come to Jesus, right? Like, Because I, I want it to be so real. I want it to be so genuine. I want to make sure that I never tell another person, which I did often, you're going to heaven just because you raised your hand. When I was 18, 19, 20, I had the same rhetoric, right? Come on up, raise your hand, come to Christ. Oh, you're going to heaven. There's fireworks going off in heaven. I would always say that. And lying to every single one of them. I had no idea what their, where their heart was. If they had truly been transformed, and yet I was communicating that they had an eternal relationship with God, foolishness. But, in doing so, I overcompensated. Especially on the moment. What I mean is, um, when I look in the scripture, there are all of these moments that the biblical characters have. Uh, Abraham, Abraham has one. Uh, David has many. Saul clearly has one. All these biblical characters that have powerful moments with God that aren't based on emotion or just awe, but true conversion. God working in their hearts, saying, look, you had a death sentence on you, but let me tell you something. Through the blood of my son, now you have the security of knowing that you'll be in the king's court, that you'll be in the king's confines, that you will truly know God, can I just take a moment right now and say this? And those of you that come to Matthias, you know, like, man, this, we, don't, we don't do this often. Yeah, probably not often enough. Look, the fact of the matter is, there are people in this room where, where you, you've walked in this room and you do not know who Jesus is. You've been coming maybe curious, living half-heartedly, maybe speaking some of the words, but God not completely changing you, calling you to repent of your sin, which means turning from the world and turning and running towards God, I just want to communicate to you the beauty and the truth of the gospel of Jesus. For me, unsaved, living for myself, Christ comes in like only he can by the power of the cross, his blood spilt on a cross, that sacrificial lamb, as Jesus is called in the scripture, through his blood, makes way for me to go from death sentence 
to an eternal relationship with God that Nebuchadnezzar in this story doesn't have because he doesn't know who he's worshiping. I get to stand before you today and know exactly who I worship. I know exactly who my God is. I'm monotheistic, and I'm extremely excited to say that. And so I don't want to diminish the moment for any of you now. There's been some of you that have been coming for a long, long time, and you have yet just to say, you know what? Look, now is my moment in the sand. I just just want to follow Christ. I know it's going to be tough. I know know Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. In other words, it's life-transforming. It's not just come to Christ and everything's great. But we need to give people an opportunity to respond. We need to give people an opportunity to say, you know what? I want to follow Jesus. And one of the great things about what this church is doing now is we're learning how to disciple. We wrote this whole big, long discipleship program this past summer so that when you come to Christ in this church, you can instantly be brought in a relationship and be discipled and grow up in the faith. Unbelievable opportunity. For some of you tonight, that may be your moment. This may be your time. It may be right now in these moments where we're just like, you know what? I'm tired of living for myself. I desire to go from death sentence to hang in the king's court through the blood of Jesus. And I'm saying it can happen tonight. There's others of you tonight that just need prayer. You've been living in this hamster wheel mode of sin, just constantly struggling with your own sin, your own temptation, self-consumed, communicating you're a Christian, ultimately struggling taking everything for granted, including the gospel. If you're a Christian in here and you've been taking the gospel for granted, tonight is the time to repent. What we're going to do tonight, listen, is we're going to respond. Every one of our Lot family leaders is going to be on the back wall. Men, women, all of our leaders back there. If tonight you're just like, you know what? I don't know what it is, but there's something stirring in me and I just want prayer. Go and find one of those leaders. If tonight you're like, look, I've been coming for a while or God's been softening my heart, but I've just yet to say I want to surrender all of who I am to the one who is worthy, then you know what? Go tell one of those people and they'll pray for you. If tonight you're just like, I need prayer. I'm struggling. I'm in, the, I'm in this constant drama in my life and I just want to give it away. I'm asking you tonight, could you just get out of your seat and to the back, not to the front. Go find one of those leaders and let's spend some time pleading and praying. I truly, listen, I truly believe that it is possible to live life in such a way because of the gospel where nothing is taken for granted. Where every second of every day, these intentional moments where the world slows down and we understand its significance. And in this moment, it's the gospel. In this moment, we, as this church, will not take the gospel for granted. And we will give people in this room And maybe you, an opportunity just to respond to it. And the power of Jesus. Forgiveness of sin. Relationship with God. Through his son, Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I... uh, I just thank you for this text and for the example of Daniel and the struggle of Nebuchadnezzar. And I pray right now, God, for your move in the hearts of people. 
God, I pray that if there's folks in here that have just been struggling to surrender, they've been seeking worldliness or trying to find pleasure in the things that this culture has to offer, I pray, God, that tonight that they understand that it's a death sentence. But that somehow, miraculously, through the cross and an empty tomb, that these people, that we, that me, can experience life and life to the full by worshiping the one true King. And so, God, I pray that as you're stirring in the hearts of men and women in this room, whether it is just to seek prayer or if it's to respond to the gospel, I pray that you will do and move in a genuine way in our midst that in these few brief moments, the gospel may not be taken for granted. So church, I want to invite you to stand with me. If at any point now that we worship and we're singing, and you just need prayer or just want to seek out a conversation about Christ as Savior, just slip out of your seat and head to the back and find one of our leaders. And let's respond now to the gospel. Let's not take the gospel for granted. Let's give God thanks for what He and He alone has done. Let's let the world slow down in these few brief moments that we could celebrate Jesus.